This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. Join us as we explore the history of the Civilian Conservation Corps and a living historian's experience passing on his knowledge to park goers. On this week's PreserveCast, we're talking with Eric Ledbetter from the Maryland Park Service about his time at Seneca Creek State Park, working as a park ranger, assistant manager of the park, and about his experience as a steward of Maryland's cultural history. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Eric Ledbetter, a park ranger at Seneca Creek State Park for the Maryland Park Service. Um, and in addition to that, um, we're going to be talking about his experience, background, and research in researching the history of the Civilian Conservation Corps, interpreting that story, and how it all kind of came together um, all across the country, but also here in, in Maryland. So, Eric, it's, it's fun to have you on. Um, before we hit record, I mentioned how I sort of connected the dots between different things that I had followed and realized that you were this uh, historian of the CCC as well as a park ranger. So, Let's take a step back and, and get to know you a little bit. Where did you grow up and how did you get involved in history and, and park rangering? Yeah, good morning, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be with your audience. It's a real honor. Um, I can never a time, remember a time when I didn't love history. Uh, I grew up in Prince George's County, Maryland, very close to the D.C. city line uh, in Cheverly. And one of my earliest childhood memories is actually a family trip down to uh, Fort Washington and just being fascinated by the stone walls and the big cannon and the view over the Potomac. Um, I remember many family trips as well to national parks, um, sometimes to Shenandoah, sometimes just up to the lake at Greenbelt. So I think it was always there. Um, in college and grad school, I went thinking I wanted to be an academic historian. And, and at that time, I thought I was going to be a history professor. Um, life took several different turns. In grad school, I, I realized maybe that wasn't the right road for me. And I ended up having many adventures over a great 20-year career. Uh, I worked in distance learning for a while, and I found my way into the museum world. Um, was involved with transportation museums for a long time, like Chesapeake Bay Maritime Museum on the Eastern Shore, the B&O Museum in Baltimore, um, the Trolley Museum in Wheaton here in Montgomery County. Um, and eventually I became a cultural bureaucrat. I was working on uh, international cultural policy for an organization uh, in Washington, D.C. But all that time I was still hiking, I was birding, I was in the parks, and I found myself wishing to bring the outside to the inside, to bring those avocations I had to the center of my work life. And in my 40s, I turned over a new leaf and I started over at the bottom as an entry-level Maryland Park Service Ranger. And um, I have loved it ever since. Um, moved on up and now I am a, a civil service ranger and the assistant manager of Seneca Creek in Gaithersburg, Maryland. 
I think it's it's so interesting. I think we we talked to a, we talked to a, a diverse group of people, and, and some people knew from day one what they wanted to be and have been that since then. And then it's interesting to hear people who kind of reinvent and and have sort of multiple careers and multiple versions of engaging with history. Um, and I think it's you know it's it's good for people listening who perhaps want to start over or try something new. That that there's definitely that possibility out there. So for people who aren't familiar. And listening, you know, we have listeners all across the country, all across the world, for that matter. Tell us about just before we talk about the CCC and your research in that. Let's talk about where you currently work, Seneca Creek. What kind of a park is this? What's the environs like? Uh, people probably aren't familiar with what Gaithersburg is. So, what kind of a park are you talking about here? So, Gaithersburg is in the northern suburbs of Washington D.C. It's a pretty densely developed urban uh, suburban community. Uh, Seneca Creek State Park is about a 6,000-acre wild oasis in the middle of that suburbia. It runs 14 miles along a stream valley, Seneca Creek, that flows into the Potomac. And it was part of a pretty visionary conservation initiative in our state of Maryland in the 1950s and 60s. The state systematically tried to acquire land along our most critical streams to protect it from development, largely to protect drinking water quality. But then it became an oasis for wildlife and an oasis of peace, silence in the outdoors uh, as the state developed around these parks. So it's a, it's a unique part. I mean, I, I always think it's you're right. It is sort of dynamic in the way that we save these stream valleys. Um, and otherwise, they, you know, if they hadn't done that now, they had all been chopped up and um, looked like the rest of Gaithersburg. Um, so it's, it's pretty fascinating, um, what that's done. What's visitation like to the park? I mean, is it hard, probably hard to figure, but, but do you have a a sense for it? Uh, if anything, we undercount it. We count cars who enter in our most developed areas with the picnic groves and, uh, and, uh, boating access and paved facilities. From that count, we estimate, uh, we used to do about 10 million a year since the pandemic. We have done nearly 20 million a year in Seneca Creek alone. Oh, sorry, 20 million in the Park Service alone, 1 million of those in Seneca Creek. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, but 1 million people coming to Seneca Creek. Yes, That's and that, that is certainly an undercount because it's not counting people accessing our more remote trailheads. Right, which is just just phenomenal. It just really gives you a sense for the value of these places. So in addition to the work that you do with the Maryland Park Service and sort of your previous career in transportation and all these different aspects of um, cultural preservation – they also have an affinity and a background and, and, a, and a deep awareness of the Civilian Conservation Corps, which is what we wanted to talk to you a little bit about today. Um, it's sort of front and center because there's so much going on around the core world. We were saying before we hit record, we're talking about what's going on here in Maryland with cores. And then also it looks like the, the, the federal government is advancing this new Climate Conservation Corps, putting $20 billion behind it. Um, so it, it all kind of goes back, though, to um, Mr. Roosevelt's tree army. So let's talk a little bit about it. What is the Civilian Conservation Corps? And then we'll talk about its legacy. But um, let's 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 paint the picture, particularly for people maybe across the globe who aren't as familiar with it or haven't been able to be uh, to experience a site that was touched by it. What was the CCC? And and, and we'll go from there. Well, just as you say, the CCC was born from the mind of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, almost the moment he became president in the worst of the Great Depression in 1932, as I think people all over America, Europe, maybe elsewhere will remember, 
the whole Western world went into a terrible industrial and employment depression uh, beginning in the late 1920s and extending all across the decade of the 1930s. Uh, the worst of it was at the beginning, and it reached its trough around 1932. Banks were failing. People were losing their life savings. People were losing their farms and businesses due to commercial failure. There were bread lines on the street with unemployed workers queuing up, huddled in their overcoats in the winter cold, just trying to keep get bread to keep their families together. Um, and it shook the foundations in America of our democracy. It, it led to populist movements and uh, from the left and from the right. And there was even some question of if our constitutional form of government would survive this crisis. Roosevelt was elected to turn this around explicitly in 1932, and he moved out with incredible vigor to try to do so. One of his ideas was the Civilian Conservation Corps. He was a patrician. He was a wealthy man. He owned a great uh, estate manor in New York State. And in the 1920s, he had begun to try to reverse the damage to the land that had been done on his own land holdings. He learned about forestry. He became friends with the great pioneering scientific forester Gifford Pinchot, who founded or was the first director of the U.S. Forest Service, a great friend of Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and he began healing the damage to his own estate, and then as governor of New York, trying to heal the damage from logging and clear-cutting and erosion to some of the state lands in New York. So when he became president, he took this idea and immediately, within his first 30 days as president, took it nationally. He asked for money from Congress to take unemployed young men um, – his notion was initially in the cities, but they actually came from communities of every kind um, – and enroll them in a conservation corps. They would move into camps and barracks in crews of 150 or 200 companies, as they called them, and work on forestry, erosion control, controlling invasive species, trying to heal the land from the damage done by the industrial boom um, of the late 19th and early 20th century. It would give the boys work. It would give them pride. It would give them skills. It would give sustenance for their family. And at the same time, heal the wounded landscape of the United States. How controversial was it? I mean, obviously, Roosevelt wanted to do it. Was there pretty wide support in the Congress to get this thing done initially? It was passed quickly, but not without some controversy. Um, one of the provisions that Roosevelt wrote on the back of a sheet of paper when he said it to Congress was the wage for uh, a core enrollee, as they were called, would be a dollar a day, $30 a month. 25 of this would go straight home to the enrollee's family to support his mother or younger sister or siblings. And they would have, he would have five to do with what he willed. However, in the midst of the depression, um, Organized labor was very skeptical of this. Um, the, the most empowered faction of labor was, uh, were the unions, the very skilled workers who, who had strong unions in the AFL. They were worried that this dollar-a-day wage would become a new national wage, and it was actually lower than some of the old wage, higher wages unions had fought for. So actually, the union movement was very skeptical of this. Roosevelt cleverly co-opted this by naming a very powerful union leader, Robert Fechner, to be the founding director of the Civilian Conservation Corps, a very FDR kind of move. Fascinating. So what is the the impact sort of 
uh, across um, the landscape, you know, the the American landscape of the CCC. I mean, I'm sure that that's kind of uh, that's a that's a tough question to answer. But how profound is the impact? you know, that the average American is still having today in interacting with the legacy of this? It is truly profound. It extends to all of the then 48 states. The CCC was active in the territories as well. There were crews in Alaska, Hawaii, and Puerto Rico. And its legacy and imprint on the land is still to be seen everywhere from coast to coast and across the seas as well. You can find it in trails with beautiful stone bridges the boys built, picnic shelters that people still recreate and hold family reunions in 90 years later, beautiful cabins in this rustic style that we now call parkitecture. Park architecture was invented by the CCC. Um, you can find it all over Maryland. You can find it in every state in the United States. So now Seneca Creek wasn't a CCC site, uh, presumably because it wasn't really a park even at that point. No, it, Seneca yeah. Creek is a creation of the 1960s and 70s. But there are numerous um, CCC sites across the Maryland Park Service. Um, how is it interpreted and do you feel like there could be? I mean, I, I know you're 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 here today. Your people can't see you, but you're wearing your your ranger uniform right now. And so I know you're speaking on behalf of the Park Service, but in some ways. But is do you feel like we do enough? Like I, I, as a visitor, sometimes I feel like there's not even enough kind of like connecting the dots between the CCC and the experience people are having. I was I was telling you I was just up at Catoctin Mountain Park at the National Park Service side in Maryland and. You know, if you know what you're looking for, you can find it and you can see it. But sometimes I feel like the legacy of it is kind of it's there. But unless you know what you're looking for, you don't see it. Do you feel like we're doing a good enough job of interpreting CCC? How can we do a better job? And then I want to talk about the living history piece, too. Um, one of the beautiful things about the CCC is it has lived on in our cultural memory. Um, uh, and I'm a good example of this. Before I got involved in all this deeply, I always just had this vague awareness that there was such a thing. I had this image of young men working heroically in the woods, and, and I would see cabins and stonework and kind of connect those ideas in my head. Um, we went through a trough in the 1980s and 90s of our memory of the CCC. Um, and that was due to the change of generations. The enrollees became uh, men with families and eventually retirees. And as time has moved on, most of them passed away in the 1980s and 1990s. We maybe went through this gap where with the loss of those living veterans of the CCC holding reunions, it may have begun to pass out of our memory a little bit. But there's an ebb and a flow to these things. Um, we're 90 years out from the CCC. In 10 years, it will be the centennial. And I think we're going to see a lot more interest in the CCC. And we already are. Um, one of the things that is happening now is whole communities of living historians, of costumed interpreters, are forming specifically to recreate uh, in real life, in full color, right in front of you, the history of the CCC. Um, that's a movement that I'm really excited and proud to be part of. And I think we'll see more of that as we get closer to the centennial. So I think people are familiar with a lot of different forms of, of reenacting. There's Revolutionary War and Civil War, of course, and World War I, World War II. A lot of people probably aren't familiar with the idea of doing it as a CCC 
you know, enrollee. So tell us a little bit about the background of this, how you stumbled into it, and then this guide that you've put together. We'll put a link in the show notes so people can take a look at it. It's really fascinating. You've gone deep into the the material culture of the CCC and what they actually wore and the dungarees and, and all the different pieces of, of um, their uh, attire and their kit. But um, talk to us a little bit about that and where that's happening right now in the field. And do you do that? And what's the response? Yeah, I the program I do um, came out of essentially my night thoughts and my pillow thoughts in my own head. Uh, I had the privilege of going to the Maryland Park Services Ranger School at New Germany State Park, which was entirely built by the CCC. So for a month while I was attending the academy, I was living in a CCC cabin. I was stoking the wood pot-bellied stove in the old CCC rec hall. I was eating meals on trestle tables, just like the boys did. Um, And that really sort of forged a connection. It was the beginning of my career as a park ranger, and I just felt such a personal connection to the young men who had built this beautiful place that I was being trained to be a steward of. When I got back to uh, suburban DC, to my urban park, I began to think, could we interpret this? Is there a way to share this story? And I began to dream of a campfire program and maybe of playing the role of a CCC enrollee. One of the first questions that occurred to me was, well, what did these boys wear? How were they actually dressed? I went to try to find out, and I discovered nothing had really been written about that. We knew very little had been said about the material culture of the CCC, to use the $10 word. Um, So I set out to learn. I looked at thousands of old photographs, and I began to look at old military uniforms. I quickly learned that the Army had been responsible for clothing and outfitting the CCC. Much of what they wore was old Army uniform parts or new uniform parts from the Army, and they had some other clothing that was designed just for their work. Um, As I learned all that, I began scouring eBay and collecting originals of these things, shirts, pants, jackets, gloves, boots. Um, finally I had a uniform and then the question is, well, what story did I want to tell? My park wasn't built by the CCC. So why would I do it here? And I realized, well, the boys worked in a certain place, but they came from somewhere else. I would put together a story about a boy from Germantown, Maryland. Um, and I drove, drew on my own family's biography. My father grew up uh, as a very young boy on a tenant farm in North Georgia in the midst of the Great Depression. I heard many stories from him and his uncles about growing up with only pumped water with no electricity. They did not own a tractor. They plowed behind mules about how hard and difficult and cruel the Great Depression was. Um, I also had long been involved in community history here in Montgomery County. I knew a fair bit about Rockville and Gaithersburg um, and a little bit about what life had been like here in the 30s. I drew, I, I wove all that together. I invented a young man, George Richter Jr., who, uh, whose father was from the Richter family, a real German-American family from Germantown, dairy farmers. Um, I gave him an invented father who worked at the... Uh, beautiful stone bank in Rockville, which really exists and is really across from the courthouse and the post office. Um, Why did he join the CCC? How did he end up poor? 
I decided that his father had had a heart attack in the bank and collapsed in 1928, leaving his mother as a widow, uh, and that he had to try to go to work to support his younger sisters, Violet and Edith. They had to go on the relief, um, and it enabled me to tell stories about what being on uh, the relief, which is what welfare was called in the 1930s, was like. Um, getting food baskets with totally unfamiliar things like rutabagas and not knowing how to cook or prepare or eat them. Um, so it became a method to tell my community in Germantown and Gaithersburg stories about the Great Depression here in Montgomery County. Then, of course, my boy has a kind of classic hero's journey. He joins the CCC, he goes through training camp at Fort Meade, and eventually is posted it depends on where I'm in the story. I now go statewide. He can be posted to Swallow Falls or Harrington Manor, Elk Neck on the Chesapeake Bay, Patapsco, uh, just outside of Baltimore. But he goes and builds a park somewhere and tells the story of adventure and hijinks, hard work, good fellowship uh, that he encountered along the way. What's the response to this? I mean, people are are used to stories about the Civil War or, or things like that. This is a little bit more like almost more recent past are people pretty fascinated by this? Does it does it engender a lot of response and kind of engagement? The response to it has been absolutely phenomenal. Um, people simply love it. There are many people who have a family story. Um, uh, if their family was in America in the 1930s, we have a community full of people whose families have come since then. But they may have a family story of a relative who is in it. Um, we have many, many outdoors men and women in Maryland, hikers, hunters, bikers, fishers. Most of them have encountered a CCC-built park. They have a little awareness of it. Um, but I think everyone loves a hero's journey. Um, you think of movies about military stories like Biloxi Blues or Full Metal Jacket that um, follow a young person from civilian life through enlistment and through adventures. The beauty of the CCC is it has that hero's journey um, without the violence, without the trauma necessarily and the PTSD. So it's a story people can connect with and in many ways a more uplifting one in some ways than, say, doing military reenactment. Let's take a quick break here. When we come back, we'll talk about sort of how this is being interpreted just beyond you and, and opportunities for people to do this across the country if they're interested. Um, and then we'll also talk about sort of the, the legacy of it and um, where it's headed today and, and the impact of cores all across the country. And we'll do that right here in PreserveCast. Historic preservation can't happen without skilled tradespeople to perform the work. And there's a critical need right now for those tradespeople. The Campaign for Historic Trades, powered by Preservation Maryland, is working to meet that need by strengthening apprenticeship opportunities within historic trades. In partnership with the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center and Conservation Legacy, the campaign is currently recruiting for NPS Traditional Trades Apprenticeship Program, or TTAP. TTAP is an intensive 20-week apprenticeship that provides young adults the chance to learn historic trade skills while working on America's most iconic historic sites. Multiple positions are open for the 2022 season at national parks across the country. Visit historictrades.org for more information on TTAP and how to apply today. 
This is Nick Redding. You're listening to Preserve Cast today. We're joined by Eric Ledbetter, a park ranger with the Maryland Park Service. We've been talking all about the work that he's done to uncover, interpret, and tell the story of the Civilian Conservation Corps here in Maryland and beyond. Um, you know, before we took our break, you were talking about this really powerful first-person interpretation you do of um, the story of a Civilian Conservation Corps member and sort of their journey. Um, I'm I'm curious beyond the work that you do in the campfire program, um, are there other examples of this either in the Maryland Park Service or, or, or Park Service sites beyond that you're familiar with where there's more of this um, in-depth interpretation going into CCC stories? Absolutely, and it's happening in many ways. Uh, but one of the most exciting is uh, it's just beginning. We're just getting underway, but there is an emerging community of reenactors and living historians who are interested in telling this story. Uh, I'm hooked up with a wonderful crew uh, that uh, is led by a retired National Park Service ranger, Mark Rigon, and we have partnered with uh, Prince William Forest Park in Quantico. Um, last year, we pioneered our first multi-day reenactment where we're living in a CCC-built camp and for 72 hours living, dressing, speaking, and acting as enrollees, cooking our food as the enrollees did, and doing actual work projects to restore the camp. Um, in Maryland, we're in the, the early days of organizing some similar all-day living history events at Fort Frederick State Park. Uh, an incredible French and Indian war fort that was restored and rebuilt by the CCC in the 1930s. A lot of the public-facing events were actually held up for the last two years by the pandemic, but there's going to be a slew of things this fall, and I think more and more each year after that. Well, we'll have to make sure that listeners are aware of it, and Preservation Maryland will share it. Um, exciting to see this um, maybe we can get myself out there in a Daisy May and uh, and and swinging an axe around. So you know, obviously the legacy of this is profound. It always it always saddens me when you read the story about how it kind of came to an end because it it didn't become sort of the standalone organization. And there have been fits and starts, and obviously there's a whole core movement now, but it, it's different in that it's not this big national program. They don't there's not sort of a you know, they're not camping out there in, in sites. It, it never came back in that way. But the core movement is really strong. And, you know, we were saying that they've now sort of put the, the focus and the emphasis behind creating this climate conservation core, which is this sort of 21st century version of this. Um, do you still see I mean, how, how do you how do you kind of connect the dots between what happened then and what is happening today? Do you see sort of this continuum, this legacy, is the CCC um, still living and breathing because of that? It absolutely still is living and breathing. I Just to go back to the history, it is sad the CCC ended, but it ended in the middle of the summer of 1942. Um, the same young men who would have been in the CCC were really needed to uh, to join the military, the army, the air force, the navy, and and be on the front lines of the struggle against uh, fascism to win World War II for the Allies and the democracies. Uh, the young men who had had CCC experience essentially were instant sergeants and instant NCOs in the navy. They became the core in many ways of the volunteer army that became the greatest generation. Um, so they had other work to do. Uh, um, and it was maybe appropriate that the Corps had to take a break um, uh, while they went off and fought for us. Um, 
After that, yes, the core movement has continued, mostly sponsored by the states rather than the federal government. Here in the state of Maryland, we have the Maryland Conservation Corps, sponsored by my organization, uh, the Maryland Park Service, in cooperation with AmeriCorps. Um, times change and structures change. I think the important thing is the values of young people in their early 20s doing hands-on work out in the field to build trails, to restore forests, to control invasive species. The techniques have changed a little bit. Um, the CCC, in some ways, was very artificial and a direct response to the Great Depression. The boys did everything with pickaxes, shovels, and wheelbarrows. It wasn't that bulldozers didn't exist. They most certainly did. There was plenty of mechanized equipment, but it was make work. It was designed to be hard and laborious and, in economic terms, not a terribly productive way to get things done. Nowadays, we, use, we have cores that enroll young people, but we teach them to use all the modern machinery and techniques, chainsaws, light equipment, um, so we get things done more efficiently. I also think as times change, um, we simply won't be building barracks in the woods anymore and moving 200 young people into camps run by officers from the United States Army. Um, the Army, I think, doesn't want to do that. It has other priorities. Um, and I don't think young people would really uh, be entirely thrilled about that environment. Um, so I think the more appropriate model is the truly civilian core we have now, uh, where young people work in smaller teams of six, eight, or 10 um, through the sponsorship of an agency like a park service. Those uh, programs have rumbled on on a small scale, doing incredibly valuable work, but on a very small scale. I think the excitement now is the sense of how expandable this model could be, how many more people it could touch, how many more sites it could help, how many more uh, potentially threatened environments like coastal environments threatened by coastal change, uh, this infusion of eager young manpower and woman power could help. So I think the future is very, very bright for core programs, but we'll get out of it in some ways what we as a society are willing to put into it. Yeah, and it's been interesting. We've worked here in Maryland um, uh, with the president of Maryland Senate, Bill Ferguson, on the, this establishment of Maryland Corps. Um, and one of the things that we worked to write into it was the establishment of a historic trades corps that would work in the Maryland Park Service. And that will be stood up hopefully very soon. But one of the things that, you know, I think that's interesting is that the core program of the 1930s was focused, so as you said, as, as make work and this economic um, engine to try and sort of save the country and, and put people to work and 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 address a big challenge at that moment. And President Ferguson talks about how the core movement now is necessary because of the hyperpartisanship and that there are people just of various backgrounds who can't seem to agree. And what if we could get them into the field together doing something valuable and kind of bring people from diverse backgrounds together to show that we're we're similar in so many ways. And I think that that's a beautiful way of kind of uh, using cores to solve whatever the current challenge is, and we're, we're so we're so divided, and and parks and open spaces and restoring things that matter to all of us seems like a great way to bring people together. So I know we're pretty excited about that. You know, you're speaking on behalf of the Park Service, so you don't have to comment on that. But but I do think it's an interesting sort of evolution of using the cores to to solve whatever the current challenge is, and obviously then addressing climate issues as well. 
Yeah, well, let me take that up on two levels. There's certainly one point that carries straight over. One of the ideals of the CCC was for young people, Roosevelt imagined from the cities, though, as I pointed out in reality, they came from farms and small towns as well, um, to go work and and be healed by working in nature. I think elements of that are still a, a very strong program of core programs even today. Young people from any county and any background, including cities and suburbs, can go to work on a core in uh, other parts of the state. They live and work in those communities. Um, uh, people in the community have an, a chance to interact with core members. Core members have a chance to learn the values of the communities they're working in. So, yeah, maybe there is a strong element where uh, rolling out more cores and expanding the work of conservation cores can contribute to um, bridging some of those uh, differences that we're seeing between the perspectives, say, of urban America and rural America. Yeah. Um, the Historic Trades Corps is. Uh, an incredibly important thing specifically for my organization, the Maryland Park Service. And we're incredibly grateful to you, Nick, um, and to Preservation Maryland for your advocacy of this. Maryland Park Service is the largest steward, owner, caretaker of historic sites in the state of Maryland. Every single piece of land that ever became a park was something else first. It was a farm. It was a dairy. It was a historic grist mill. Uh, As we acquired the land, we acquired with it the human legacy, the buildings, the human stories. We haven't always had the resources to care for that human legacy along with the land itself. Um, We've made enormous strides in recent decades. The Park Service is more history-minded than it has ever been, but there is still a a pretty big gap between the amount we have to care for and the resources we have to care for it. A historic trades conservation corps will be an incredible help in bridging that gap. I have projects in my own parks that I would be incredibly eager to have a historic trades corps work on me with. So full steam ahead. Yeah, we're excited about it. And I think it's great that we can pilot it here and then, you know, through PreserveCast and other ways, get it out to the other states because every state could take advantage of this because most states have a state park service and are in dire need of work being done. And we're modeling it off of a federal program that exists that's actually based out of Maryland as well, the Traditional Trades Advancement Program, which is the sort of the the National Park Service version of this. So um, it's an exciting moment. So I could go on and on about the CCC. We'll have to do some video with you out at Fort Frederick when you do the uh, the living history and, and we'll connect people with all of that and make sure we share all of that. Before we go, we ask this question to everyone. It's, it's basically the most painful question. What is your favorite historic place or site? You're asking me to choose among my children. I can't yes. do that. Um, it could be your most favorite today. <laughs> um, I will say for... For our subject today, I'm going to have to say New Germany State Park. Um, Just it's a very special place to me. Yes, it is in a beautiful subalpine landscape in Garrett County. It is a beautiful park to visit and hike in, but it's rich with the CCC and and it was where where I really became a park ranger, which has become... uh, Uh, Being of service as a park ranger is very deep and meaningful to me now. So I'll go with New Germany for today. Well, that's fantastic. This has been a really fun interview. Exciting to hear about all this. And we'll have to bring you back and and talk some more about CCC and 
how this is uh, launching all these new core programs and the, the, un- the enduring 90-year legacy of this great program. Thanks for joining us today, Eric. My pleasure, Nick. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.